Hebrews is right after all the Pauline letters. If you see Timothy, Thessalonians, keep going. If you see John and Peter, you're too far. We are in Hebrews chapter 3, verses starting at verse 7, and then going to the end of the chapter. The word of the Lord says this. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, They shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Oh, Lord, bless the faithful reading and preaching of this word. Amen. I've spent a lot of time in the church. I grew up in it. I was raised in it. I knew just about everyone, old and young. I've heard hundreds, if not thousands, of sermons and volunteered faithfully. My best friends have been church folk. My mentors are church folk. My comforters and encouragers have been from the church. And my mission of life flows from the overall mission given to the church. I am a tried and true church man in the 20-something years that I've been here. In all my time, experience, and love that I have received and given in the church, there is nothing that stings and perplexes me more deeply than seeing members of God's church fall away from the living God and from His church. Unfortunately, we have seen it time and time again. Someone will faithfully attend. They'll join different groups, join some ministries. Maybe they'll even volunteer. And do it with a smile. But then, you notice they're not coming around as often anymore. Their attendance is maybe half the time. They show up late, even when they do show up. Other commitments, excuses, stop them from volunteering. And the smile and the joy that was once there, it's not there anymore. You don't hear from them anymore. Then one day you hear the news. Maybe you hear it from a a lady at the church, or maybe in the soft, regrettable tone of an older man. Maybe you read it on Facebook. It's 2022. They no longer call themselves a Christian. You hear it in disbelief. What? How did this happen? 
But there's more. Not only are they no longer a Christian, they think religion is bad. That church is horrible and full of horrible people. Horrible place. Where did this come from? How can they be here one day, everything going great, and the next be completely against it all? What happened? You're disappointed? We all are. Many of us cared about them. We loved them. We were there for their children. We're there for their parents. But they left. And not just left our church, but left the faith. I wonder if there's something I could have said, something I could have done, which could have stopped them from falling away. Somehow God could have used me to keep them with us. But it's too late. They're gone. They tested the Lord, hardened their hearts, and fell away. They aren't coming to the living God any longer. These are hard things to see. The damage of apostasy is great. Hear the pain in the voice of a parent whose child has completely repudiated the faith. Or examine the lasting damaging effects that it has on the kids when a parent apostatizes. Observe how friendships are destroyed. Jesus said he was going to divide. Families are torn. Generations of children marred by those who abandon the Lord. We may not like to dwell on it, but we know it well. This is another page in a book that stretches to the beginning of sin, retelling its story of coming to the Lord and falling away. Was it different in Moses' day? Were people faithful then? What about in the time of the psalmist? Surely people didn't apostatize then. How about in the early church? We had the apostles. Were people true then? The answer, of course, is that people have always been falling away. We beckon them to come to the living God. They may have rest in their afflicted souls, and many do. But they're not planted on good soil. They come for something else. And when push comes to shove, go after the greater desire, which ends up being sin and worldliness. My call tonight given the text that I have, is to plead with you to come to the living God today. Come today, because to delay is to play with fire. And come today, because you will find rest. And I am not above pleading. How often did Moses plead before God that his sinful generation would be spared when the Lord's wrath was kindled? How often did he beg God, that his, uh, beg the covenant people to forsake their sin, hold on to the Lord and his law. Now, I also recognize my audience tonight. Many of us are also churchmen, churchwomen for a very long time. I recognize very many of you, and every one of you pretty much. So I, I recognize my audience is full of people who have come to the living God, and I praise God for that. And so this might just be an echo of what you already know. But then think of those who you know have left. And remember Hebrews 3 tonight. The author of Hebrews, what he's quoting here, refers back to this time, the time of Moses, the wilderness, all of this, because he has a lesson to teach us, which is that to delay coming to the living God is to play with fire. He starts, verse 7, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, where he is going, that word therefore, you always hear it's important, connected with the preceding verses, 
particularly in how Jesus reveals to us the finished house. If you look at the first six verses of chapter 3, it's talking about the house. Just as Moses was also faithful in God's house, verse 3, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. So he's talking about this house. And this is a house that Moses was working towards. What is this house? The house is an analogy for the covenant that God makes with his people. Was Moses great? Moses was great. Actually, our author to Hebrews is trying to compare. You know some great things. The angels are great, and Christ is greater. Moses is great. And he's going to show that Christ is greater. He had to be. But first, let's stick with Moses was great. Because through him, God was building the house. The covenant. The covenant was shown in greater revelation to Moses than it had ever at that point before him. We got the law. The system by which people could be made right with God. You sin, something, has, something or someone has to die. You're covered for the sin and you're good until you sin again. But also it was given beautiful promises. This is the house being built. It's not finished yet though with Moses. He gets the foundation laid. The skeleton is erected. There's scaffolding all over on the outside. Moses is serving in this house. This expanding covenant. But... It awaits the builder. The builder, of course, is Christ. Christ comes, fulfills all the law, becomes the perfect sacrifice on the altar of heaven, and brings the better covenant, the full house, with better promises for his people. And there's room in this house. Come on in. Gentiles, nations of the earth, the scaffolding's off. The bedrooms are furnished. Come to the house. Come to the living God. His grace is here. Receive grace today and obey Him. That's where our author was going. But the Holy Spirit also has a word for us. See, the author is quoting Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11. The psalmist wrote those words 1,000 years before Hebrews was written. So, but, but who's the real author of those words? We get that in verse 7, as the Holy Spirit says. It's the Holy Spirit. Because of divine inspiration of Scripture, our author is applying the Holy Spirit's words to his day, even though it's a thousand years after. And I'm applying it to our day. Why? Because it's still today. The age of grace. The time when the house is open and you may come. The day is coming when the door will be shut and you won't be able to come and it won't be today any longer. So I am applying today what the author of Hebrews applied to his day, what the psalmist applied in his day, what happened in Moses' day hundreds of years even before that. This is how God's word works. It's always relevant. He always speaks. He's always true. Please turn to Psalm 95, but keep your finger on Hebrews 3. So, if you look at how Hebrews 3 puts it, it's, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of... 
excuse me, testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Okay, what does it say in Psalm 95, though? <coughs> End of verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test, put me to the proof, though they had seen my works. Okay, so back in Hebrews 3, he talks about the rebellion and the wilderness, but Psalm 95 is directly saying what the rebellion and the wilderness is. Meribah and Massa. Those are the two events that he is referring to. So these events are explained in Exodus 17 and Numbers 14, Moses' day. We will look at both in turn. You can take your finger off and go to Exodus chapter 17. In Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7, we get the account that the psalmist is referring to. Exodus 17. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? What a question, by the way. Is the Lord among us or not? This is the testing and putting God to the proof. When God is not enough and you grumble instead of having thankfulness. Friends, this is the reality of an unbelieving heart. There's never enough evidence for you. You keep demanding more. If more is presented, you simply dismiss it and move the goalposts and say you need more. These are people who rant about there being no God while they breathe the very air he gives them in order to rant in the first place. It's rejecting God when evidence of him is everywhere. These Israelites had seen the plagues come upon Egypt. They saw the sea part, come up. They saw Egyptian armies fall in that same water. They had manna from heaven. They had the cloud and the pillar of fire, representations of God's presence to guide and lead them. And still it wasn't enough. They put God to the test. Give us more. They always want more, always striving for what is out of bounds, always wanting to push the limits of what is acceptable. Jesus spoke well of these kinds of people when he said, even should Moses come again from the dead, still they would not believe. The other account referred to is Numbers 14. Please go to Numbers 14. And that is the account... The other one that is being referred to, 
verse 20 through 35. The Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Now, since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way to the Red Sea. Turn around, you're going back. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, how long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And of all your number, listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in this wilderness. According to the number of the days which you spied out the land, forty days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity forty years, and you shall know my displeasure." I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I will do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. That is a serious passage from a serious God. What we just read corresponds with the final verses of Hebrews chapter 3. He was asking all those questions. Who were the people who rebelled? Was it not those whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Who are those who put God to the test? Like, he's asking those questions at the end of, in the final verses of chapter 3. These people put God to the test, grumbled, and still demanded more. They disbelieved despite having more evidence of revelation from God than arguably any other generation on earth. Arguably a lot more than we get. But this is what happens when your heart is teetering on the edge and you don't come today. We are not meant to be on the edge of faith. On the fence. Belief, unbelief. We're not meant to be there for much time. People can be there for a short period of time on their journey to repentance and faith. But if you stay in that place of holding God in the balance, will I believe? Won't I believe? You're in a dangerous place. Being on the edge is a form of putting God to the test. God, I don't know if I believe. Show me more. Perhaps I will. The longer you're there testing God, the harder your heart becomes. And this is the sad story told again. The man entertains the idea of trust in Christ. He hears the gospel. He comes to church a few times, shows initial warming, but is not ready to commit just yet. It's okay. He says a lot of good things, indicates he gets some of it, but something is holding him back. 
He recognizes sin as a concept, but the reality of him being a sinner completely deserving of punishment by God, that's not sinking in yet. He's in the balance. You keep trying, keep loving. You ask him to consider again. But all the more, the longer he's in this place of being on the edge, his heart is hardening. He needs to come to the living God today. No longer sit on the fence. There is more responsibility on us the more light that we are exposed to. That is to say, if you know the truth, you're accountable to it. This is why many people avoid searching for the truth. Once you know it, you're accountable. A sinner who hears the gospel and the sweetness of Christ's mercy, but holds it in the balance, is well on his way to having a hardened heart. And once this hardening has taken place, you've fallen away completely, which is the end of the cycle. What starts as testing the Lord turns to provoking him, turns to hardening of the heart, turns to falling away. Take care, brothers lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. In the middle of verse 13, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Our author is going to bring up apostasy a few times in this book. And the word that he uses here for fall away from the living God is the word for apostasy. He brings it up multiple times, and we're going to get to infamous Hebrews chapter 6, probably in a couple months, where we will hear of apostasy again. He warns about this because the Jews under the old covenant in the incomplete house apostatized. They fell away despite having more evidence and revelation than any other nation on earth. Now, in the new covenant, we're in the finished house. And people are still at risk of apostasy. And he warns us in stark words that we can be hardened and fall away. When you play with fire, you will get burned. Only we're not playing with candle fire or a lighter fire or even the purifying fire of Christ or the fire of God's word. But these are the fires prepared for judgment on all the wicked. These fires will consume those who teeter on the edge, who test and provoke the Lord, who have hardened hearts, who fall away. There's no middle ground. There's no neutrality. It's Christ or chaos. There's a great concern to many preachers that uh, for those who come and sit under Bible preaching for years, for decades, week after week, exposed to the greatest of light, but have, as verse 12 states, evil, unbelieving hearts. Who's he talking to? Is he talking to unbelievers here? Or is he making this warning to Christians? This is a terror. This is a dread for those who come and believe they are saved simply because they show up once a week, yet their lives are full of debauchery, pride, heresy, and licentiousness. This is a dread for those who keep on demanding more evidence from God. You don't need more evidence, friend. You need to recognize your lostness before God. Stop playing with fire. Come to the living God today. However, this is not a dread to those who are sensitive to their sin and have received a new heart. I echo what 
Our author writes in chapter 6, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. There is a beautiful promise for you, beloved, if you hear his voice and your heart is not hard. We find it in the middle of our text. You notice how our author cushions the middle with these hard passages. He quotes Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, goes a few lines. Then he has the middle section, verses 12 to 14. And then at 15, goes back to that psalm. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And he goes a few lines on the same subject matter as he did in the first few verses. Verse 19 is the summary of the first section, 7 to 11. And the second section, 16 through 19. So the first verses, 7 through 11, that's part 1. And then he's got that middle part. And then 15 to 18 is on the same subject matter as the first section. And 19 summarizes the point of both the first three verses and then those last three at the end there. They were unable to enter because of unbelief. The issue is unbelief, playing with fire, a hardened heart. So it's the middle section then that is our focus and our hope. It's the answer for the stated problem. The stated problem being hardened heart, unbelief. Rather than fall away from the living God, fall into his hands. There's rest there. God had a rest for his people, Israel both in the physical and the spiritual sense, which no doubt will be explained next week as we go into chapter 4, because it's all about rest. So for our purposes, I want to speak of rest as the peace that we have in Christ. The book of Hebrews gets nearly every detail from the Old Testament. Just by the way, if you want to understand the book of Hebrews, basically every single sentence comes from something in the Old Testament. Every section goes back in some way. The center of attention for our author is Leviticus chapter 16. You don't need to turn there. We've already read it a couple times. But you, if you want to understand this book, Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement, uh, we've spoken of it a couple times, but after the ceremony happens, the, pre the high priest gets to go in once a year into the most holy place, and he has to kill some animals to cleanse for himself. He's got the two goats. On one of them, he's going to forsake and let go into the wilderness. The other one, he has to kill. He has to have per uh, special clothing on. He's got to bathe himself. The guy who takes out the animal parts has, uh, burns it onto an altar outside. Then he has to bathe himself, because now he's unclean too. And uh, the guy who takes the goat out to forsake it in the wilderness, he has to have a bath too. So there's a whole, whole lot of stuff going on, but all of it is symbolic. All of it has meaning. They were, they were physically doing this, no doubt, but it was all pointing to Christ. And this is what our author of Hebrews does in this book. He looks at Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement, looks at the whole point of the Old Covenant, says Christ fulfilled it here. He's better than the angels here. The angels mediate that covenant. Christ mediates the new covenant. Christ is better than Moses. Moses was great because he, he was serving the house here, but Christ is the builder of the house, so that's how he's better. And this is what he does. Everything goes back. Uh, so they, they do the sprinkling of blood, the sacrifice, they forsake the scapegoat into the wilderness, cleansing, burning, changing of clothes. Uh, I, I was just joking. Actually, I do want to read from Leviticus 16. <laughs> I didn't lie. I joked. <laughs> just a couple of verses because that's actually really relevant. In Leviticus 
uh, we'll just pick it up 16 verses 16 through 19. We're going to see something kind of kind of interesting. I wrote, uh, actually, 26 to 29. I put ones instead of twos. And he who lets the goat go to Azalel shall wash his clothes, then bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. And he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. And it shall be a statute to you forever, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves. Uh, the word there is uh, like fasting. Uh, that's the idea. You shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. We're going to go a couple more verses. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you. And you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. We'll stop there. Rest. When you are in unbelief, you are playing with fire, a hardened heart. But when you are in Christ, there is a rest and a cleansing that he has for his people. They, that is the Israelites, received it through the ceremony, but only temporarily. Every part of that ceremony goes back to Christ, of him being its fulfillment. Christ holds the rest that we all long for. Have you ever woken up one day and felt exhausted? Oh, it's probably just me, right? Uh, you ever get really worn down by everything in life? Of course, that's all of us. We all want rest. And that's just in the physical sense. Yet our souls, our, our hearts, needs rest a whole lot more than our hearts do. And that's in Christ. In Christ is the rest that we want. Do you remember your heart and your ways before having the rest of the living God? Do you remember how foolish you were? How you lived without hope? I remember, for me. Prior to Christ, we're lazy. We're self-assured. We're idolatrous. We're lovers of self. We're arrogant. But ultimately, <coughs> miserable. We wonder, what's the meaning of all this? We are so restless. But oh, did that end when we came to the living God. The day we tasted of Christ, our strivings ceased. Our souls found rest. We await perfect rest in eternity. Yes, we'll still deal with exhaustion. We'll still deal with being overwhelmed today. But in the judicial, legal sense, our rest has already been granted to us. Just got to wait for the time to catch up. And then we will have it in eternity. We can sit here now with a form of the peace that we will have in glory. But friends, the day to obtain this rest is today. This is the day. Now is the time to share in Christ. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today. The door is open now. You're free to enter. One day it won't be today, and the age of grace will end. As long as it's today, you can come. And while you're here, remind us in the house to continue to hold fast to our original confidence to the end. That's what he wants us to do. Every day, exhort one another. So while we're in this house together, keep on exhorting us who are here. 
In this house, you will find yourself safe in Christ's rest. In his hands. The last thing we'll be looking at. Jesus spoke this way in John chapter 10. You can turn there if you'd like. I'll just be quick. In John chapter 10, verses 25 to 30, he says something very comforting. That is, Christ says this. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So if you even think about getting them out of Christ's hand, now you've got to contend with the Father's hand as well. I and the Father are one. His hands, we are in His hands. We have rest there. We are not going to be taken out. Didn't Jesus promise this? He promised us rest in Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is the type of rest He's talking about, by the way. It's not just having a bed to sleep in. This is talking about that eternal idea of rest. The rest that goes back to what the Jews thought of rest when they heard God say, they won't enter my rest. The promised land is a rest and you're not going to get to enter it. It has deep meaning to them. That rest which he speaks, it's all here. Have it in Christ. Come to the living God today, while it's today. But if I may press one more urgent warning, answer me this. What happens when you fall away from the living God? Whose hands do you fall into? Are you scared that you'll fall into Satan's hands? It's actually not Satan's hands that I would fear. Go to Hebrews chapter 10. Later in this book, Hebrews chapter 10, 26 to 31. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Either way, you end up in God's hands. One way or another. It's God's world. Which hands, though, will you be falling into? Into the hands which promise rest for your soul? or the hands that will avenge the trampled body of Christ. The greatest sin is unbelief. And if you disbelieve, you are guilty of the shed blood of Christ, not atoned by it. You fall into his hands one way or another. And so, beloved, the door's open. The house is built. Everything's ready. Come to the living God today. I urge you. And our author commands us to urge one another to come, to hold fast to our original hope and confidence in Christ. Stop playing with fire, lest your heart be hardened and you fall away. Instead, fall into his loving hands. Find rest. It's all here. Come to the living God today. Let's pray. 
I thank you, Lord, that for us in this room, many of us know that rest, that we are in your hands, that you nurture, guide, protect, lead, care for, go before, and build for us. You are everything that we need and more. I ask for anybody who is on the edge, even in this room, but for friends, family, children, who we think of, who have not yet come, would you send your spirit? Would you send us to be the bearers of your word that they could come to the Lord today? Not tomorrow, not next week, even today, while it's, there's still time. And so, Lord, embolden us to give this gospel of peace, reconciliation, to any who you would send into our path. And let us hold firm to our original confidence to the end, knowing that you will not let us be snatched out of your hand. This all in Christ's name. Amen.